going to be scams. There's going to be fake numbers and he doesn't trust it. He's already setting the stage for if he loses, he can just riot. Welcome to the Messy 404, the podcast by amateur investors for amateur investors. I'm Golf and I have Chris here with me. We've both been investing for over a year and we'd like to give an insight on how we analyze companies for investment. In this podcast, we usually go over some of the stocks on the news right now, a potential 10-bagger and then anywhere else our brains like to go. Goff, what do we have in store for segment number one? So I think this week, Chris, I think we should take a step away from the stocks itself and look at a big news highlight for this week and how it's impacted some of our stocks. Um, and that, of course, is... The president Donald Trump getting coronavirus. It's funny, yeah. When uh, when did that happen? Friday, right? From uh, we're recording yeah. what, Wednesday now, last week Friday. And at, at first, you could really see the impact. I think the stock markets fell by a couple of percentage points. But then I think towards the end of the day, it's somewhat recovered. But I think you're talking more about the wider impact these smaller influences can have, right? these uh, like external shocks to the stock market. Let's say tomorrow someone gets uh, uh, horribly injured in a car crash. Let's say Elon Musk gets injured. And then the, the, the stock price might tank by about 10, 15%. It's all these external shocks that are quite interesting, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's one person's health suddenly you know, made me lose 5% on my portfolio. <laughs> um, was it that I much? Mean, it's, yeah, so I, lo- I lost about five odd percent. Um, there's a huge impact in oil, huge impact in the momentum stocks as well. Uh, they recovered, you're right. Um, but for that moment in time, I mean, I was down significantly, uh, which raises the question, right? Because, I mean, Trump's uh, not getting younger and uh, his, uh, I mean, Joe Biden's just as old, right? Uh, so it raises a question of how stable a lot of that economy is and how stable uh, your portfolio is to take some of this impact, right? Yeah, slightly diverging to oil. It's it's kind of crazy how much it's been bouncing around. I think as soon as the news about Trump came out, it's it fell by about 5%. And then um, coming back, it rose about 6% yesterday or the day before. It's crazy, right, how the market sentiment changes. And the reason we're talking about oil is because Gov and I, we've been following the oil price quite a lot since it first um, tanked during the corona time frame. Yeah, the, the other aspect um, is, I mean, we saw a recovery in all these tech stocks and momentum stocks, and then a crash straight after because Trump um, stopped the stimulus bill, right? And he essentially just said, Oh, I'll I'll pass it when I come back into the office, assuming he's going to win, and obviously, <laughs> obviously that's uh, quite risky for the the people. And I've I've heard some other interesting or well be maybe concerning aspects that he has in his power in case he doesn't get reelected, which might affect the stock market in in big ways. So I think he can then get another review of some of the results and kind of force himself to stay in power and all of these like little loopholes he has as the acting president and that that concerns me. Yeah, not just that, he's already, just like he did last time, he's already questioning the validity 
of the election. He's already questioning stuff because obviously postal votes going to be quite a big thing with coronavirus rampaging the US. And he's already started questioning the validity, saying, you know, there's going to be scams, there's going to be fake numbers, and he doesn't trust it. He's already setting the stage for if he loses, he can just riot after. Um, which is also very concerning because that's going to fluctuate the market significantly, right? And we've got to be prepared for that. Yeah, if 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 the biggest country or the the most important um, country as as far as stock markets go, if that suddenly has political issues of one president being not re-elected but staying in power, <laughs> Jesus, you can only imagine where the stock market goes. So. I guess uh, it's a good time to de-risk a little bit, isn't it, Goff? Exactly, exactly. So, Goff, for the second segment, last week we announced we would talk about Netflix. And we did our research, and um, it's quite an interesting company and maybe some surprises in there. Goff, do you want to start us off with like the history and the timeline? Yeah, I think we should just give an overall perspective on how Netflix has reached its stronghold today um so essentially it was founded in 1997 um and the website i think launched just a year after but it launched like pivotally in 1999 a monthly subscription concept which is completely different to what was available back then uh and it's this uh, i know we spoke about it in the amazon case uh, last week but in this week this the business model and reaching for something new is something that's core to Netflix's uh, strategy, right? Uh, in two thousand, they even like offered the business up to Blockbuster, who were the stronghold at the time, uh, who declined to buy it for like fifty million, right? And uh, we'll get onto what Netflix is worth today later on in the episode to see how poor a decision that is. Um, but essentially, they I mean they it took them a few years to get to one million subscribers. It took them up to like 2007 when they delivered their like one billionth DVD service. But really, the change didn't happen to what we need to be focusing on. Between 2008 to 2013, there was this huge drive shift into how uh, content is consumed by people. And Netflix really pushed hard. And in 2013, they launched uh, with House of Cards a show that's a Netflix original, right? And it's a Netflix original show to a customer base that's already using a monthly subscription online. And I think that was a pivotal moment where the company completely changed from being just a, a, a third party of just giving content out to consumers to being end-to-end, -end, from being creator to supplier and having uh, its outreach on both ends. And by having the outreach on both ends, it can really leverage its technological like base. And I think people don't realize, but before 2011 or 12, that time frame, it was essentially a completely different company and business model, right? It's, it's crazy how much that really changed away from like DVD subscriptions all the way to streaming and that huge pivot that an established player could probably not do right and we've seen it and that's that's probably why blockbuster fell away well that is essentially why blockbuster fell away and that's why netflix has taken over the world with their streaming platform being the first mover being the first company that offers that streaming over the internet 
Yeah, and, and I think with that, it's positioned itself. And it's really important to understand. It's very important uh, when you're investing in these stocks to understand what the company really is, right? And Netflix isn't an entertainment renting website um, as a company core. That's not what people would invest in. So this is really important for you to understand as you analyze the company is, yes, that's exactly what it does. And that's its uh, output for revenue is that it actually uh, offers movies and TV shows for people. But at its core, Netflix is a technology company. And we'll go into these different reasons why it is and why it's also production house and it's also um, a, a suite of entertainment. And it's important that there are these different um, components to it. And you need to understand its strength in all three before you choose to invest and its market landscape, right? So I think that gives an idea as to the different areas we should be exploring during this conversation, Chris. Um, so we've had a quick overview of Netflix's timeline and essentially its, its emergence to power and its emergence to becoming the largest entertainment provider uh, worldwide. So now let's look at that. And it's just one revenue stream compared to the companies we've um, reflected on previously. It's just one revenue stream of subscriptions, right? People paying for subscriptions. But I guess we should go into the user experience aspect, which is exactly where the technology comes in and why it becomes a technological uh, giant rather than just a, a video renting uh, company. So Chris, do you want to touch on like as a user... As a, from a user perspective, how Netflix manages to have such a big stronghold and a connection to its uh, users? I've, I've been comparing Amazon Prime. I've been comparing um, uh, Netflix and BBC iPlayer, you know, Channel 4. They've, they've got their own tool. I haven't been on Disney Plus yet, but I've been using all of them quite extensively because uh, pretty much, I think, as most millennials do, you hardly watch any live TV anymore. Um, especially during Corona. Especially yeah. during Corona, exactly. <laughs> and uh, to me, it seems like Netflix is miles ahead. And there's a cusp, couple of aspects. Number one is how good the we website performs, even on low bandwidth. Um, you see that if you're on your family Wi-Fi and suddenly there's five people on it and Netflix is still going uh, smoothly, same as YouTube would. They kind of cache certain elements of the video in low quality, so at least you can carry on watching. Um, that same aspect with Amazon Prime, it keeps cutting out and sometimes it crashes the stream. BBC is nowhere near it. Um, and then it goes into new other aspects. So, for example, what it suggests to you and from, you know, what we've seen is Netflix doesn't just suggest the right shows to you. So it doesn't just suggest House of Cards. It actually shows different images and different small clips to different users. So let's say I'm, I'm a female and I like female politicians. It might show um, what, what's his wife in the show, Goff, House of Cards? Um, Claire. Claire, exactly. So it might show an image of Claire to me as a woman and then suggest to show House of Cards. Whereas if, if it's golf, it, it might show an image of him and how he's standing in front of a stage just because they learn from Goff's watching history that he likes powerful people. Um, <laughs> and that whole algorithm of how they suggest different shows and then different images to the shows to different people is so good. If you've ever used Amazon Prime and their TV service, you realize how good Netflix is. 
because Amazon is honestly on on you know it's it's good and it has similar amount of content but when you're then actually trying to find the right things to watch and if you're trying to find the next episode for that show you just watch the next day it's terrible it really is terrible in comparison to netflix and that's that's where maybe it loops back to just being a technology company as much as it is a a, a, a tv producing company or a content provider I think it's important to realize, Chris, what you're talking about, which is essentially the poster for the movie, adapting to who's using it. That's a technological feat, right? That requires incredible um, like machine learning algorithms to understand, oh, that's what Chris likes to see in his movies, and that makes him click more. And just understanding Chris as a customer um, is critical to Netflix's success, right? And this is something that, you know, when I was growing up, I just thought that was just something that people just said, which is, oh yeah, we, customer first, care about customer first. But no, <laughs> actually in today's world, it's that critical that if your user experience is f- phenomenal, you will make, you will stay within, you will stay subscribed, right? And that's really important to know because essentially for that increased experience, Netflix doesn't actually get any extra money from Chris, right? It is not getting any extra money from me because I'm not paying any uh, different amount to have a different like poster for a movie. But just that experience, Netflix realizes that I will appreciate that experience more. And if I if I have a much smoother customer experience, then there's no reason for me to switch out and go to some other provider. And that's exactly my thinking behind it. I Netflix has kind of become... Sp- base subscription for me because i know if i just take two to five minutes i know something new will come up that i would like to watch whereas on prime it takes me so long to find a show to watch that's more likely the one i'll just throw out eventually when i just can't be asked to pay for it anymore on that note with the whole subscription scoff we've seen a huge shift now in in the corona time frame right i think netflix has added as many subscribers this year as they have for the entire last year and we've we're only talking about like a, a four or five month uh, time frame that it took them to add this many new subscribers do you see that growth continuing there are a couple reasons for why i don't think that's going to be the case chris um so firstly i think there's been this huge rise because the reality is uh, COVID's hit and people have been in lockdown a lot more and there's so much more time and you don't know what to do at home so you end up subscribing to a new service, right? And, and that's, I mean, the first place to go would be to go to the top dog, which is Netflix. And that's essentially what anyone would do if they never bought a phone before. The first phone they'd probably go buy is probably an Apple phone, right? And, and so on. And once... Once you have the user experience and you take that, you start realizing how many competitors Netflix currently has. And I mentioned, you mentioned, Chris, how it is superior than some of the others. But guess what? If you're a new user to Netflix, if I have a three-month free trial at Amazon Prime or a three-month free trial at Disney+, Plus, there's no reason for me not to try that out, right? And... Essentially, at that point in time, the growth just isn't sustainable for future because these new subscribers will have to, well, not have to, but will really be incentivized to move. 
these new customers don't have the level of loyalty that a original Netflix uh, subscriber would, right? So uh, these guys aren't stuck within this company and they can choose and move away. So I see Netflix losing subscribers in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point, especially in the markets where they're really saturated now, where uh, everyone has a couple of subscriptions. And then I think it becomes a question of is Netflix the base and we add the other ones onto it? Or will we start canceling Netflix and then replace it by Disney Plus, you know, Apple's new streaming platform, Hulu Plus? So, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's not quite sustainable at the moment, the growth they've had. Whereas I think there's some emerging markets where they could continue some sort of growth. So I think example is in India, they've introduced a new mobile subscription, haven't they? That is extremely cheap and that provides the content for those countries in a, in a cheaper uh, way and adds those, that new market kind of for free. And India is a great market because number one, everyone's English speaking, right? And then number two, it's just a sheer amount of people, right? The sheer amount of possible subscribers. Yeah, sheer amount of people. And also, guess what? Um, all these people take an hour, hour and a half to get to work. So <laughs> um, so it's a great opportunity in terms of like the use case. Well, I've got an hour to work. I might watch a show, right? And suddenly with that offering, it's really, really um, attractive to these new um, aspiring customers, right? But you talked about the um, the different players, and I, I think it's it's very important to just touch upon the fact that a lot of these other players are not just in the TV space. So you're talking about Apple, Amazon, you're talking about Disney. They have they have other areas of their business where they can make a lot of money, and they are making a lot of money. And then just take the TV part, these these streaming services, kind of as a loss maker, like Amazon does. I don't think they make much money on Amazon, uh, on Prime TV. I think that it's simply there to get users to subscribe to Prime to then use it in other parts of Amazon. So Netflix is not just up against players in the same space. They're up against players that are just happy to lose money in the TV space. And I think that might become a problem in the future. But well, you know what's funny? You mentioned that. Um, but essentially, that's how Netflix itself operates, right? Netflix itself is in so much debt. I think it's like 15 to 20 billion dollars of debt. And for a company that's got 182 million subscribers globally, it's pretty like sort of uh, pretty shocking to see that they're 15 billion in debt, let's say. And it's because of their it's because of their business model, right? Essentially, they're now pivoting into becoming its own like production house and create its own sets of uh, Netflix original movies and TV shows. And it's really banking on shows like Stranger Things, right? Where it just takes over the world and essentially people can't not watch it. And to be able to create these shows, Netflix, just like all the other production houses, need to take on the debt prior to creating the content, right? So 
it's just a standard production house model, but it's something that Netflix have always been doing. They've always just been taking on as much debt as possible to then reinvest into these different shows or the technology itself. So it's something that Netflix is banking on coming good as the subscribers keep rising the next few years and, and keeping that stability high. And I don't know if you've ever seen the content on Netflix, but they offer so many shows and so many movies. Half of them you've never even heard of, actors you've never seen, storylines that seem, you know, seem to make no sense. And they can afford to do that because they're able to have this level of debt. Yeah, I have two different views on the debt. One is the positive and one is the negative. The positive is clearly all the original content they produce with having that debt. And all that original content, um, you know, as any other software house, once it's there, if you keep increasing the number of people that pay for it, you don't have to pay more for the content that's already there. So every new subscriber in that sense just becomes pure profit. The negative side on the debt I see is that right now they get this very cheap. They are fang stock, you know, there's the, they're the first mover, they're clearly the market leader. They become that cheap that debt is is quite cheap to them right now. What if the market sentiment changes, right? What, what if we have a couple of years of recession and uh, FANG stocks are just not what people want anymore. They want to go back to the value uh, solid stocks like, you know, what, what do we have? Uh, um, Airbus is a bad example because <laughs> we're not right now in a good time frame for tourism. But you know what I mean, right? Like uh, travel, oil companies and all that stuff. Um, and, and they're just dragging that huge pile of debt behind them so un unlike other tech companies netflix's free cash flow is actually a lot worse compared to the standard tech company that is working on just making pure profits every single um, year and adding to their free cash flow so uh, th there's a bit of a, a good and bad with what netflix is doing right now i think and then what's what else is important with their competitors their direct competitors like disney and hulu coming up and creating their own streaming platforms, they are taking that content away from Netflix. So it's kind of like they're in this barrel now where they have to keep producing new content because other players are dragging content away from their platform to be able to still grow and to be able to keep all these people on their platform. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, Chris, but it, I guess what's important is I don't know if it's the same content that they're fighting for right so uh, i'm sure i'm sure there are some shows that everyone's bidding for and now those shows are the real winners because they get a whole bunch of like different offers competing offers right uh but i mean disney's got its own label of movies that it can like rely heavily on right whether it's the star wars stuff whether it's the disney movies etc etc um and just like that each service seems to have like hbo has its own like game of thrones and it has its own set of tv shows that it relies heavily on so i think the the stronghold content i don't think is changing it's these new shows uh, and also the historic shows like the friends uh, where there's a heavy bidding war into, on where they stay on the platform, right? I think last year, the most watched show was actually The Office US, um, which came out years ago, right? But it's something that people have a familiarity with and just watch whilst they're eating dinner or whatever. And so 
having shows like that on their platform is critical to these companies. And those are the shows where they're bidding and having this big bidding war against. Yeah, and I think Netflix has become famous for making these old timers uh, uh, like really popular uh, uh, hype shows all of a sudden i think they've done the same to breaking bad now it's the office and all our millennial crowd are getting back into these old shows and re-watching them yeah it's brilliant um but one thing that maybe does concern me a little bit with netflix um and maybe i'm the only one <laughs> but the future so what does the future bring i don't see too much innovation right now from the company itself i know they're getting into making content but um, how are they going to compete with like YouTube and other players that are just constantly innovating? So, you know, live streaming is a good example um, or, or just live coverage of events or, um, you know, the gaming space. I don't see Netflix being in any of this. And then also short clips, right? Stories, just little things you want to just watch for like two, three minutes. And maybe that's not the play space they want to go into. So uh, interested to hear your, your opinion, Gov. But I just don't see any innovation. To me, Netflix, and maybe they're innovating behind the book. So maybe they're innovating on their algorithms and other things. But right now, I don't see them going into new things. So I think I, I think it could have gone one of two ways, right? Um, and I think um, Netflix have decided that the future for them should be creation of this movie and entertainment space i think that's what they have decided they need to put their effort and money into and they're going to leverage as much data and technology to make that a success and try and make that as quickly and as best as possible instead of like you mentioned going against the flow and the trends where uh, live streaming's a big become a big thing. I know Amazon have linked in with say like you could watch the US Open live and and you could watch other sh um, live um, programs, right? And Netflix just you as you mentioned isn't getting into that space. And whether that is a downfall um, five years into the future is really like interesting to see, right? I I personally I think everyone has a very specific use case for when they go into Netflix, right? I don't go on to YouTube to watch a movie. I don't go on to uh, Spotify to watch something. So I think everyone uses these apps in uh, their mind. It's bucketed into one of the key criterias. And I think Netflix has just pushed heavily to, in the idea that that's not gonna change in the future. So welcome to the final segment. In the final segment, we'd look at the 10 bag of stocks, essentially stocks that could explode in the next five to 10 years or could just come crashing down. Well, hopefully not in your case, Chris. What have you got for us today? <laughs> right, this is one of the first ones I'm not invested in, so I can talk freely. <laughs> oh boy. No, this one is uh, quite interesting but it already has a market cap of 3.8 billion. So we're not talking about a small company here, but we're still talking about a company that could potentially um, multiply a few times in the next few years, I see. So this week's company is Switch. Um, and I don't mean Nintendo, uh, which everyone that's Googling Switch will see for the first five pages. Switch is a technology infrastructure provider and that's the most vague statement that I've ever made about a company. But 
essentially what they do is they create data centers and provide that entire cloud infrastructure that everyone's talking about, you know, all of the autonomous driving, wearable devices, all the data from your phone, all of that good stuff, you know, Netflix, we've had it just now. They need those data centers. They need that infrastructure in the cloud and they need companies to provide it for them. So Amazon, Google and Microsoft, they probably built their own data centers. I'm not entirely sure. But then once we get to the second and third level tier companies, so Intel, IBM, Intel is actually a, 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 a custom of Switch. They need data centers built for them because they just don't have the expertise or the scale. And that's where Switch comes in. They build and they have many patents to uh, build these data centers. I'm not sure why you need a patent in building data centers, but they do. And it's actually quite complex to build a data center. You have to think about the security, you have to think about insulation, heat, or performance, all the failovers. If one unit does fail, then another needs to um, come in. So there's a lot of like little things that a company that isn't an expert in building that would just, you know, crash on um, a company that isn't an expert in building data centers would just fail on and this is where switch comes in as like the outsource company to build data centers for some of their clients uh, and this might be the first company you've mentioned chris that i've heard of uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, again, I don't know too much uh, depth in in depth information about Switch, but essentially it's got about seven eight hundred employees, and it has specific these purpose built data uh, data centers like you mentioned. Um, but the really interesting part is how it's actually got very effective coverage across the North American zone, and essentially it's built these cost centers. And you mentioned you mentioned uh, the innovation. The innovation is it's like incredibly low cost use of power and low cost use of like connectivity and like the fail safes again uh, built so that it requires very little energy uh, of, to run um, and also it's been it's in locations which have like low risk of natural disasters so that that's all I know about it um, in terms of the company uh, why do you think this is something that could explode in the next 10 years Explode might be a strong word because it's already being hyped up quite a bit. But I think a lot of companies that are trying to move into the cloud or they're trying to see, um, oh, we'll, we'll just build up a, a data center network, then realize how complex this undertaking is. And again, it's more the second tier, third tier companies like uh, maybe IBM, you know, Intel, all of those that need their own uh, infrastructure in that space. Where Switch then comes in and does it for them a lot more cost effective than they could do it themselves. And a fun fact, Green, well, fun fact, I'm talking like a salesperson, but Greenpeace has a clicking report, clicking green report. I'm not sure what clicking is there for, but probably internet related. And the clicking green report has put Switch as the number one technology company in the world above all others for, you know, uh, sustainability and using green energy. Yeah, I think they have a public commitment to have their Michigan data centers be 100% uh, renewably powered. 
um, which is, again, if we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, if um, ethics has a huge play in investment strategy going forward, um, that would really pop up this company, right? Um, in, in terms of my view, I don't think this fits sort of my investment profile because I'm trying to understand, like here, I don't know really what the landscape is. Um, so the landscape was something that I'd want to dig into a bit further to understand really like because all the big companies we've mentioned already right build their own data centers and have their own data centers so we are talking like you mentioned for these like second tier third tier companies uh and i don't really know what the landscape is i don't know right now uh what microsoft do. i don't really know right now what these companies do to have uh, a cloud-based operations no and that's fair um that's probably why neither of us is invested it is an interesting stock, but high risk. I can see them just staying that size for a long time if other companies do build you know, the same quality of data centers. I'm not sure what differentiates them that much from other players in that space, but it does seem that the, um, the market sentiment around them is very, very good, and it's definitely a growing area. So, um, yeah, do your own research, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Well, great. Um, thanks for joining us, everyone. Uh, join us next week where we'll be talking about... Facebook, uh, I would say, would be a good next fang stock to talk about, right, Gov? Uh, sounds good. I mean, um, yeah, that's going to be quite an explosive episode, I think, Chris, with our strong opinions on Facebook. Uh, so catch us next week, yeah. guys. <laughs> catch us next week, guys. Um, how can people contact us, Chris? Just subscribe and uh, leave a comment and we'll uh, answer any comment that is left. 